Good morning. I heard someone here in the front row say, that's our Cowboys pastor. I don't know, not this year. No, I'm kidding. There just really isn't much to say though, right? I don't think faith is going to help this time, Irene. I think faith matters in the things of God, but in the things of the Dallas Cowboys, there's not a lot of faith that we can have. Uh, Church, it's good to be here with you guys. Um, It's good to continue the series that we're going through in the book of Hebrews. Uh, Just everything that we've learned and everything that we've seen through this book has been uh, been of tremendous help, I know, to each and every one of us. I've been enlightened by it every time and every week that we've gone and we've studied together. Uh, And so today we're going to continue this journey through chapter 9. And uh, the book of Hebrews was written to a group of of Jewish believers. We're not exactly sure where. We're not exactly sure who wrote the book. Uh, But what we do start seeing in the book is that the author is is challenging these new believers uh, in their life because they're being confronted with difficult circumstances. And I think just like a lot of us, when we're confronted with difficult circumstances, we sometimes can start questioning our faith and where's where God is, and I think um, these believers were going through the same issue, and they were about to encounter some real difficult persecution, and so the author wanted to take this opportunity to be able to write to them and, uh, and, and be able to encourage them in the faith, uh, in, in this new faith that we have in Christ Jesus. So those of you at home, we're going to be reading in Hebrews chapter 9. Those of you here will be reading out of Hebrews chapter 9, and you can follow along. We'll do our best to get through the entire chapter today um, as we continue to study together. You know, um, growing up as a kid, I never had a chance to go to Disney World. Uh, it wasn't until an adult that I had a chance to do that. And, uh, and the other day we were sitting down, we were talking with our kids, and, and we, we started counting on our fingers how many times our oldest daughter, Sarika, has gone to Disney World or Disneyland. And uh, this little girl has already gone, I believe, four or five times uh, to Disney World and Disneyland. And, uh, and, and the last time we went was, was one of the, was probably my favorite chip, trip because every other time Daisy either was pregnant <laughs> or having to stay off the rides with a little toddler or a newborn and we would have to change out and, and who's going to get on what. And so this last time they went, we, we went, we had a blast. I mean, we were all over the parks and we were riding all the rides together and, and, and uh, little Ad- Adeline, she's just a soldier. She's our little, she was five years old. She was four years old when we went. Went, and she was like getting on anything she can get on, hands up, and just, yeah, just having a great time. Roller coasters to her meant nothing. As long, if she could get on, she felt safe because we were there with her. But it got me thinking that I wonder what it would be like for them if we drove up, if we said, hey, kids, we're going to Disneyland, and everyone goes, yeah, right? They're going to be so excited. And we drive all the way to Orlando, Florida. We drive into the park. We pay parking. And then we get off the, 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 the vehicle and, and we pop up a tent and, and, and a grill. And we say, well, here we are, guys. <laughs> Just feast your eyes and enjoy this park. <laughs> what do you think they would say? How do you think they would feel? I think inside of them, they would be thinking of all of the amazing fun they could be having inside because Disney World, let's be honest, it's a, an amazing place to go to. It's, it's an amusement park like none other. The care that they have for it and the beauty that's within the park is amazing. And so I know that my kids would be sitting outside the walls like, 
what do you mean we're not going to go inside? I'd be like, don't worry. I'm going to grill something. You're going to enjoy it, you know? But they're going to say, Papi, we don't want your food. We want the park. And they'd probably start to chant, park, 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 until we finally go inside, right? You know, for me, I get that type of anguish when I go to Sam's and I'm standing before a tomahawk steak and I'm just looking at it. And I can't have it just yet. And I'm just looking at it, right? But for you, what is that? What, what is that one thing, that one place that, that, that if you could go to, you would go to because there is so much beauty, there is so much to experience, there is so much to enjoy, but currently right now you sit outside the fringes unable to go to that place. What place for you would that be? When was the last time you pulled up to a park or you pulled up to a place or you read about something and you saw it on television and you thought to yourself, man, if I won the lottery, I'd love to go there, but I know I can't afford it. So, oh, well, tough luck. But every time you get on the Internet, you research it and you Google it and you're looking at the beauty and the splendor of this place and you just wish you could be there. I think we've all had that feeling in our hearts and lives. We've all had to experience that before. I got a buddy here sitting right in front of me to, to my right, and this buddy loves motorcycles. I'm sure he's walked up to a motorcycle and he's just said, man, I wish I could have that. And I know many of you like cars and you walk up to a car and you say, man, I wish I could have that. For me, again, I'm on the other side. It's the tomahawk steak. But the reason I bring this up is because as we're going through chapter nine, we're gonna see the beauty of a place the beauty of a place called the tabernacle in the wilderness and how God instituted this tabernacle and this worship in this place. But the one thing that we're going to see is that this tabernacle in all of its beauty was established by God to keep man away from him because of their sin. So let's go ahead and jump in. Let's read in Hebrews chapter 9. We'll start verses 1 through 10, and we'll go ahead and read through those verses. And here's what it says. It says, now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the, for a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the, and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was the golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, for he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this argue, uh, arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation." 
And here is this place, and here is this amazing tent of worship. And here's a graphic of it. Here, this is what it looked like from the outside. And so these right here, this was the exterior wall. That right there was the exterior wall. And there was a curtain, a beautiful curtain that hung in that place. And that beautiful curtain was meant to keep the people of Israel out because the only ones who could go into the gate, into the entrance curtain, through the entrance curtain, were the Levites, the priest and the high priest. But the Levites could only stand outside here. This is the only place they could stand. The Levites were, where it was the, the, the tribe at that, uh, of Levi who would worship God and they would minister to God with music. And they would do that here in this section. Let's go to the next slide. And the Levites stood out here and the priest would go into this section here called the holy place. That was the first spot. So they would offer uh, offerings here unto God. And once a year, only the high priest could enter into the holy of holies. Just the high priest in order to make atonement for the sins of Israel. Now we could have a series on this tabernacle alone, so I don't want to get into detail, but I will say this is that this was a beautiful place. This lampstand made of, of, of pure gold hammered out the, the, the Ark of the covenant, which signified the presence of God here in this place. And this place was so sacred that the, 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 the high priest would enter with the rope tied to his leg and many believe there was bells attached to him as well. And, and if they stopped hearing the bells, what they would do is they would just start pulling the high priest out because he died in the presence of God because he hadn't cleansed himself of his sin. But this was the presence of God. This is where he was. People were ministering to God here and here. But you know where you and I would have been? Out here in the outer parts of the tabernacle. Beholding all of this beauty like Disney World, seeing that God had made this amazing tabernacle for worship and, and tabernacle of, 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 of a process of cleansing so that the people of Israel could still be in relationship with God. For a very long time, uh, most would say that religion was the process of people having a relationship with God. And this practice and this worship was simply to allow the Israelites to have a relationship with God, to be in, in, in a good place and a good standing with God. But wouldn't it be torturous to stand outside of this place knowing that God is in there and I can't get there? Knowing that there's so much beauty to behold in this tabernacle, yet I can't go inside. In church, here is the thing, though. The Israelites in chapter 20 of Exodus, they forfeited their right to have a relationship with God. They told Moses because they were afraid of God. And, and I believe verse 19, they say, Moses, you deal with God. We'll talk to you, but you talk to God because we're afraid that he'll kill us. Again, a generation lacking faith. And they would prefer to stand on the outside of the walls. I don't know about you, but that's not me. I don't want to be on the outside of the walls. Here's what William Barclay says about the beauty of this place. He says there was beauty but it was a beauty in which the ordinary people were barred from the inner presence of God. And here's what we're going to look at. Jesus took that barrier away, opened wide the way of God's presence for everyone. 
And so for this chapter and next week, this is the theme that we're beginning to develop. That once we as a people would stand outside of the gate because of our sin, but now Jesus Christ has come and instituted a new covenant that, through which we now have access to God. Amen? We no longer have to stand outside the walls and behold its beauty, but we can now behold its beauty from the inner courts, from the most inner court, which is the presence of God. And we get to enjoy this relationship with God because of what Jesus Christ did for us. So let's keep reading. Let's go to verses 11 through 15. And here's what the author writes. He says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, this is not of this creation. Okay, so this, this new tabernacle, this new covenant that Jesus Christ is instituting is not one made of human hands. It's not one made of creation. This old tabernacle was beautiful, and it was made from the plunder of Egypt. They had every type of jewel and stone and pure gold in this place. It was amazing. It was something to behold. But the author now is telling us there is a greater tabernacle because Jesus came to open the way to the heavenly tabernacle. This tabernacle was but a shadow of the things to come. It was but an earthly copy, a temporal place of what was eternal and what was greater. And Jesus Christ comes and he institutes that. So when he appeared as a high priest, he was bringing those good things. Let's keep reading. He entered once and for all into the holy place, into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Holy Spirit or through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to live or to serve the living God. Therefore, right, for this reason, as a result of, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Let's unpack this a little bit. Here's my first point of the day. Since Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, I can serve God with a pure conscience. Since Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, I can serve God with a pure conscience. So what was happening in the tabernacle through the sacrifices and the guilt offerings and the offerings that were being brought before God through, through way of the priest and, and the work of the high priest was simply taking care of the external sin. As a matter of fact, if you paid attention, it said that it was there to take care of the unknowing sin that the people had committed. They didn't know they had committed sins, but they had committed a sin and therefore they needed a sacrifice on their behalf to cleanse them, but it only cleansed their exterior, the, 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 the outer portions of them, the, the, the external work, but the inner aspect of the person still was full of guilt and the conscience of the person was laden heavy with, with, with guilt so that they couldn't serve God. Can you imagine what that was like? 
that you knew there was a sacrifice being made for you, but you knew as well that the inner aspect of your being was still filled with the guilt and the weight of your own sin because your conscience couldn't be cleansed. The sacrifice wasn't worthy. It wasn't enough. It wasn't sufficient in order to cleanse the conscience of the people as well. And if you see, these, these sacrifices weren't being made on a personal level. They were being made on a corporate level. So it cleansed the exterior, but didn't cleanse the, the, the internal. You know, for some of you men who love cars, you know this, right? You know that if you buy a car, you have to take care of it, right? You have to give it its treatment. You have to take care of it in order for it to last a long time. What if a person, what if a friend came to you and said, man, I love taking care of my car. Oh, yeah, what do you do? Man, let me tell you, every weekend I wash it, right? I wash it down. I, I, I shine the wheels. I put, uh, you know, armor all on the tires. It looks clean. I even got a buffer and I buff out all of the little scratches. And, and that paint job just looks shiny because I'm taking care of it. And you're like, oh, that's great. What about inside? Yeah, inside. I, I vacuum it. I, I clean everything. You're like, man, that's pretty good. You do that on a weekly basis, and they'll say, yeah. You're like, well, that's amazing. When was the last time you changed the oil? Hmm? <laughs> never done that. What do you mean you've never done that? That's taking care of your car. That's taking care of the inside of the car, of the internal aspect of the car, because if all you do is wash it and make it look shiny, but you never take care of the internal components of the car, what's going to happen to the car? It's going to lock up, it's going to break down, and you're not going to have a car anymore. Because cleaning the outside isn't enough. You have to clean the inside. Right? Here's, the other, here's another, another way to illustrate this. This is going to be more personal. Let's talk about when someone commits adultery. Let's talk about when someone lies to their spouse or is unfaithful in, in any aspect to their spouse. And, and you haven't confessed your, your unfaithfulness. You haven't confessed your lie. You haven't confessed anything to them, but you're trying to continue to live life as nothing has happened. You've stopped having that relationship with that other person, or you've stopped doing this or the computer or whatever it may be, but you never confessed. What ends up happening most times out of none in those relationships in marriage is that you start driving a wedge between you and your spouse because the guilt of your sin is still upon you. The guilt of your actions is still upon you. And though you may want to coward out of confronting and talking to your wife and talking to your husband and being honest with them, you continue to drive a wedge deeper and deeper. And we tell ourselves a lie that if they find out, it's just going to make things worse. However, our inability to deal with the inner aspect of our sin is what's making it worse. So just like a car... In every relationship, we have to deal with the things that are most important. We can't just deal with the outer aspect of our actions, but we have to deal with the inner aspect. And that means confessing in a relationship. And we are in a relationship with God, which is the most important one. And thanks to Jesus Christ, we now have a pure conscience in order to serve God without guilt. We are saved by grace, by faith, it's a free gift of God, but we're saved unto good works, which Scripture tells us God has prepared for us. Each and every one of us have something to do in the kingdom of God. Each and every one of us have something to do every single day. But if we were weighed down with the guilt of our sin, 
because Christ's sacrifice wouldn't, wasn't sufficient for our conscience, it would be very difficult to pursue that. So now we are no longer slaves to sin, as we read in Romans chapter 6, but we are now freed from sin in order to serve God with a pure conscience because of the work of Christ. Here's uh, my second point of the day. We're still working off of the same passage, verse 15. It says this, since, since Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, I can trust that my eternal inheritance is secured. Since Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, I can trust that my eternal inheritance is secured. I love this because he says, first off, he gives us eternal redemption, right? So once and for all, Jesus goes before the holy of holies, the most holy place before the presence of God, and he became the sacrifice for our sins. He cleansed us from our sins. He gave us a pure conscience and allows us to, to, to serve God in this new life that we have. We've, you know, as baptism, we see that we've, we're dead to sin and now we're made alive to God through Christ Jesus. Now we're seeing that we have this eternal inheritance that's secured for you and me. See, Jesus is the king and Lord of all. Isaiah spoke about that during worship. Scripture talks about that all over the place. My Lord, my king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Jesus is the son of God. Jesus has a, a, gigantic, a gigantic inheritance for himself, but Jesus didn't mean and intend to keep that inheritance to himself, but he wants to share that with those who come to God through him in faith. And so every person that comes to God through faith in Christ Jesus that simply comes to say, Father God, I trust that the work of Christ on the cross and his life, death, burial, and resurrection is enough for the forgiveness of my sins, then that person is ushered into the family of God and given an inheritance that's eternal and secured for you and me. So he didn't mean to hold on to it. No, no, no. He wants to give it to us. And here's how we know that this inheritance is active. He talks about a will. And this will is, is and like, it's just like a written will that you and I would have. Each and every one of us, we have at some point, hopefully we'll go to an attorney and we'll say, hey, I need to draw up a will for my family. Okay, well, let's draw it up. Okay, so this, this kid's going to get this. No, this kid's disobeyed a lot. So he's going to get like 10%. This other kid, she, 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 was, she stole my heart the moment she was born, so she's going to get everything, right? But you draw up a will. Can that will be enacted while that person is still alive? No. A will is enacted when? When a death occurs. And so the death of Christ on the cross enacted a will that you and I have that secures our eternal, our eternal inheritance with God and from God. Church, one, 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 one professor in class once said to us, he said, you know what the irony of us, of people, of humans is? You know what the irony is? He said, we spend all of our lives trying to buy the house next door when Father God is willing and ready to give us a kingdom. Let that sink in for a minute. You have a father who's willing to give you an eternal kingdom and inheritance. Yet we dedicate ourselves to this life and the things of this world, trying to get the best of this world in the meantime, forsaking the best in the world to come. 
You have a father that's willing to give you an inheritance, and he did so in Jesus Christ. Let's keep reading. That's amazing. I love that. Let's go to uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 16 now. He says, For where a will is involved, that's what we're talking about, the death of the one who made it must be established. That was Jesus. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is still alive. So Jesus had to die. Therefore, as a result of, for this reason, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all of the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and the vessels used in worship, the tent that we just saw. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is is no forgiveness of sins. Every covenant known to man, every covenant in the history of Scripture was enacted by the covenant, by the blood of something or someone. Jesus, God makes a covenant with Abraham. He splits a calf in half, and he walks in between it, but blood had to be shed. He makes a covenant with Moses. Blood had to be shed. And the new covenant that he ushers in with us, the covenant of grace where we can come into his presence now through Jesus Christ is enacted by the very blood of Jesus Christ himself. He didn't withhold himself, but he knew he had to die so the will can be enacted and you and I can stand in the inheritance God swore to give us. And now Hebrews chapter 9 verse 23 says this, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For reason Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as a high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not of his own. For then he would, he would have to had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, but as it is, he has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins for many, will appear a second time, watch this, not to deal with sin. His second coming isn't to deal with sin. He already did that. But to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So my last point of the day is this. Since Jesus is a mediator of a new covenant, I can await his return with eager expectation. Since Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, I can await his return with eager expectation. Church, the sacrifice of Jesus is amazing. It makes us sons and daughters of God. It makes us inheritors with Jesus Christ. It puts us in a right standing with God that every day we can get on our knees and we can come before his presence and we don't have to be excluded because of our sin. We're not those who stood outside the tabernacle, but we're those who are now inside the tabernacle. We're now in the presence of God. And here, here are four things that, that, that one pastor says about the sacrifice of Christ and how it's different from others. Number one, he says the sacrifice of Jesus was voluntary. The animal that was being sacrificed, that was involuntary. He didn't know where he was going. 
The sacrifice of Jesus was spontaneous. Animal sacrifice was entirely the, the product of law. The sacrifice of Jesus was entirely the product of love. Listen to that. Isn't that amazing? The product of love. We pay our debts and business dealings because we have to. We give gifts to our loved ones because we want to. It was not law but love that lay behind the sacrifice of Christ. Number three, the sacrifice of Jesus was rational. The animal victim did not know what was happening. Jesus all the time knew what he was about to do. He was conscious of it. The sacrifice of Jesus was moral, number four. Animal sacrifice was mechanical, but Jesus' sacrifice was made through the eternal spirit. What happened on Calvary was not a matter of prescribed ritual uh, mechanically carried out. It was a matter of Jesus obeying the will of God for the sake of men and women. Behind it, there was no mechanism of law, but the choice of love. Church, once a year, there was an atoning sacrifice that needed to be made. We know that Jesus is a high priest, but I think sometimes we lose sight of that Jesus is also the scapegoat of that atoning sacrifice. Each year, there were two goats, one for the Lord and one that was a scapegoat for the sins of Israel. And that scapegoat was led out, out of the camp, into a deserted place filled with the sins of people because here, this scapegoat once a year would go and be slaughtered and sacrificed. The high priest would take the scapegoat outside of the camp and outside of the camp, he would lay his hands on him. And as he laid his hands on him, the sins of himself and the sins of the people of Israel would come upon that scapegoat, on that goat. And when it was slaughtered, that meant that that goat was carrying their sins. Jesus was the scapegoat. Jesus was inside Jerusalem, but willingly and voluntarily, Jesus allowed himself to be led outside of the gates of Jerusalem to a place of death that no one would go to. And upon Jesus, the hand of himself and the sins of mankind were transferred on him. And when he was slaughtered and he was killed on the cross, there too my sins died and yours as well. There's no need to ask for forgiveness a thousand times because you've already been forgiven. There's no need to, to go to a father. There's no need to go to a priest. There's no need. Because Jesus did it once and for all in his, his sacrifice. It took care of the sins of the past and the sins of the future. What God calls us to do is to put our trust in his son and that's all we have to do. Jesus, you gave yourself for us. My hope and my trust is in you. In you is the forgiveness of my sin. And through you, my conscience is purified and I will serve God in this life. And I will enjoy him in the next Church, this is the amazing work of Jesus Christ. So we know we stand here today because we're purified in conscience through his, his sacrifice. We have an eternal inheritance and we can await his second coming eagerly, but also faithfully serving God in the good works he has created for you and for me. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for this truth and we thank you that you didn't withhold your son. We thank you that, that it was your will from the foundation of this world that he would be the all atoning sacrifice sufficient for the sins of the world, sins of the past and sins of the future. And Father, that he deals with our heart and he deals with our conscience, making us able to serve you and to love you in this life and to live for you and for your purposes. God, draw our hearts nearer to you through our love for him and through the enlightening of your word and through your Holy Spirit. I pray that if there's anyone in this room who hasn't put their trust in your son, Christ Jesus, for their salvation and in him alone, I pray, God, that you are doing that right now in their hearts and your Holy Spirit will draw them to truth, that they might be able to trust in him and him alone. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you.